Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a moment, what's not being talked about in the highly contentious debate regarding Georgia's new voting law? Because everybody else is talking. We quickly began working with the House and Senate on further reforms to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. The bill I signed into law does just that. And what we have witnessed today is a desperate attempt to lock out and squeeze the people out of their own democracy. Well, election integrity activist Marilyn Marks weighs in. And in just a moment, Bishop Reginald Jackson joins me with an update regarding a planned corporate boycott. And later in the program, you'll meet 14-year-old Gabby Tobin and her passion to help others. But first, this. Today is the day Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's executive orders lifting many remaining COVID-19 restrictions goes into effect Now, Governor Kemp says as more Georgians get the vaccine, the state can begin to, quote, return to normal. Here's what this means. Georgia businesses will no longer be required to enforce social distancing and there is no longer a ban on gatherings of 50 or more folks. In addition, government officials no longer have the authority to shut down businesses that violate social distancing measures. Now, this comes despite repeated guidance from public health officials, including the Centers for Disease Control and Director Rochelle Walensky. The trajectory of the pandemic in the United States looks similar to many other countries in Europe, including Germany, Italy, and France. Looked like just a few weeks ago, and since that time, those countries have experienced a consistent and worrying spike in cases. We are not powerless. We can change this trajectory of the pandemic, but it will take all of us recommitting to following the public health prevention strategies consistently while we work to get the American public vaccinated. I'm calling on our elected officials, our faith-based communities, our civic leaders, and our other influencers in communities across the nation. And I'm calling on every single one of you to sound the alarm to carry these messages into your community and your spheres of influence. And that was CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Meanwhile, another 991 new coronavirus cases were confirmed in Georgia yesterday. So here's your total. As we've been saying every day, this goes back now to last March. The total number of confirmed cases, 858,268 confirmed coronavirus cases, 16,827 Georgians have died due to the virus. And the total number of hospitalizations now, 59,356. On to this, the Masters Golf Tournament is set to begin today down in Augusta, Georgia. This year, Dustin Johnson will attempt to become only the fourth player in history to win the green jacket in back-to-back years. But there's a lot more happening away from the golf course as well. The tournament begins less than a week after Major League Baseball announced it was moving its All-Star game out of Georgia in response to the state's new voting law. Now, here is the head of Augusta National, Fred Ridley, addressing the legislation at a press conference just yesterday. We realize that views and opinions on this law differ. and There have been calls for boycotts and other punitive measures. Unfortunately, those actions often impose the greatest burdens on the most vulnerable in our society. And in this case, that includes our friends and neighbors here in Augusta, who are the very focus of the positive difference we are trying to make. Now, faith leaders in Atlanta who say they plant, say the law targets vo- voters of color and are reportedly planning protests at the tournament. 
Meanwhile, in related news, a joint statement from Spelman, Morehouse, Clark Atlanta, and the Morehouse School of Medicine cite, quote, the passage of Senate Bill 202 stands at odds with our values and our collective mission to advance social justice and equity. And despite the argument that, that the law expands voter access, for many in our communities, the Election Integrity Act of 2021 will have a negative and tangible impact. The restrictions now in place will curtail voter participation in marginalized populations across Georgia. Close quote. Meanwhile, as mentioned, there was a planned national boycott of some Atlanta-based corporations organized by black faith leaders. Now, those companies included the Home Depot, Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines. But that's on hold for now because there's been a meeting scheduled for next week. So joining me now with more is one of those faith leaders who's been very vocal ever since the law was a bill and first introduced in the General Assembly. Bishop Reginald Jackson presides over the 6th Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Bishop Jackson, as always, glad to have you back on the program. We've been talking a lot lately. Yes, we have. Good being with you again. Well, the last time we spoke, we didn't know it was true, but now we do know. Uh, Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star game from Georgia, and as we've learned, will be played in Colorado at Coors Field. Your thoughts about all that? Well, in fact, we did not advocate for them uh, to move the All-Star game, but at the same time, we applaud Major League Baseball for making a decision demonstrating their values. And I think that is tremendously important. And at the same time, it also says something about the political leadership of Georgia, that it would pass such legislation that baseball felt it had to move its classic event out of Georgia to another state. The governor and fellow Republicans and supporters have been vocal uh, about Georgia-based corporations, as some call it, caving in to pressure from voter rights groups, Democrats, and folks like yourself. Uh, what's your response to that? Well, first of all, let's let's take a look at the governor. Uh, in November, he claimed that uh, President Trump was not accurate, and I've done something I've not done in four years. I never called him that title before, so let me go back. Uh, he claimed that what the liar-in-chief was saying was not true, that the election was not stolen, that there was no fraud. He said that nicely, he said that publicly, he said that strongly. So now he comes, and two weeks ago, he signs a bill that is based on a lie, the very lie that he said wasn't true. He signs a bill seeking to give it credibility. In addition to that, understand that Brian Kemp is the architect of voter suppression. In 2018, he dropped more than 500,000 names from the voting rolls, while he was also the Republican candidate for governor. So if you want to talk about an election that was stolen, let's talk about the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia. Brian Kemp, be frank with you, has no credibility when it comes to election integrity. Have you all ever tried to have a conversation with the governor or any of the lawmakers while Senate Bill 202 was being debated? That's an interesting question. Uh, the bill was passed in the House on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be acted on by the Senate on Monday. Because of the bad press the bill was getting after it passed the House on Thursday morning, they took it up for a vote in the Senate on Thursday afternoon. Prior to that vote, I did have a meeting with the Lieutenant Governor and expressed to him our opposition to the bill at a very frank, candid meeting. We arranged a meeting with the Governor, but we're told later on that the Governor, something came up and he wouldn't be able to meet. Well, now we know what came up because in the past, whenever bills are passed, the Governor's office has said, it takes two days before the Governor makes a decision whether or not to sign it because his counsel, his lawyers have to review it to make sure everything is in order. Well, this bill, the governor signed less than one hour after it passed the Senate. That's what came up that he couldn't meet. Let me ask you this, Bishop Jackson, in that meeting with Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, what was his take on all of this? Well, you know, Governor Lieutenant Governor Duncan is interesting. He made it clear there were a lot of things in the bill he was opposed to. And in fact, uh, when the bill came before the Senate the first time, he left the chamber. He's the presiding officer of the Senate, but he left the chamber. He said that that was to express 
the fact that he was not supportive of these bills. And my comment to him, of course, was, well, why don't you just stay in there and say you don't support these bills? And so when it came to this one, I think the Lieutenant Governor kind of uh, exposed that he was uh, lacking a backbone because he had a chance to delay the vote on the bill as a presiding officer, and he chose not to, and the Senate voted. So that, that's where he is. And we should note that Closer Look has repeatedly reached out to Governor Brian Kemp, House Speaker David Ralston, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, those who sponsored the bill. Apparently nobody wants to talk to us, so just letting folks know. Um, as mentioned, the plan... Sam, you're reaching not long enough. Well... As mentioned, the planned boycott is now on hold and a meeting is scheduled for next week. Uh, let's get some clarity here. Who will be attending this meeting? Well, there will be about uh, 15 corporate executives from Georgia and across the country. And we're looking forward to this meeting on next Tuesday. We, we will present to them uh, what we think they need to accept and support. Uh, as it relates to this legislation. And hopefully, if they agree to it, then they will begin the process of helping us to block legislation like this passing in 45 other states. And if they will support S4, which is federal legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would negate this bill that was passed in Georgia. And if they will support litigation that we have uh, to get this legislation ruled unconstitutional. That's what we're hoping will come out of this meeting. And if they, not, then we'll have to do what we have to do. They being Coca-Cola executive, the Home Depot, Delta Airlines in particular, I just want to get some clarity here. Yeah, also AFLAC, mm -hmm. uh, Southern, uh, UPS. I uh, can't remember all of them, but, sure. but those are some major ones will be present. And these action items that your side will present to the corporate leaders, and you say if they are not on board, then whatever consequences follow after that? In other words, what will be what will be? That is correct. Just as we're hoping that they will be able to agree, we're also preparing in case we have to have a boycott. Let me get your thoughts on this, because... Governor Brian Kemp, in a press conference last weekend, said he received no criticism or concerns from some of those Atlanta-based corporations. In fact, here's what Kemp stated last week on CNBC. Well, I'm glad to talk about Delta because we've been working with their legislative team and the Coca-Cola legislative team the whole time. Um, specifically for Delta, they did not express any reservations about the final products of this bill. It wasn't until a couple of days after we signed it, that after the political pressure that Ed Bastian is now putting out a statement that, quite honestly, nothing he said yet is pointing to suspic uh, any specific points in the bill that are causing suppression or any of those things, because it doesn't exist. Bishop Jackson, what do you make of the governor saying, as relates to these Georgia-based companies, that they didn't have an issue before? Now, do you plan to address this with some of the CEOs that you meet with next week? Get some clarity on? Well, let me say this. Since I, since I wasn't in the meeting, I uh, can't count. But also, let me say, I, I really, at this point, don't think that matters because let's look at a couple of things. First of all, the governor himself, when this legislation was being considered, said he had not made a decision on whether or not he supported the legislation. And now, all of a sudden, one hour, less than one hour after it passes, he signs it. So you're not going to convince me that the governor's mind also wasn't made up. In addition to that, I think that one of the reasons why some of these corporations have not did not speak out uh, in opposition to these bills was because of retaliation. For example, let's look at Delta Airlines, who the governor referenced. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, uh, the Delta Airlines spoke out against the NRA after the shooting at Parkland High School in Florida. Well, the legislature voted to withdraw a $50 million tax deduction for Delta because they were opposed to uh, the National Rifle Association. When Delta Airlines spoke out against this bill, SB202, the, the legislature again began the process of again 
withdrawing a tax benefit from Delta Airlines because they spoke out against this bill. Mm -hmm. The only thing that saved Delta was on the last day of the session and time ran out. Mm -hmm. This legislature takes a position with corporate companies that if you speak out against us, we're going to punish you. And so I don't think you can give much credibility to anything the governor or the legislators say. What does the boycott look like if indeed it does go forth? Are you going to ask this be a national boycott? Who are you asking to boycott? Or are you going to wait until you actually decide to boycott? Well, now, we have already reached out to a number of national organizations, uh, fraternities, sororities, and all to support the boycott. They have agreed they would do it. So if we have to boycott, we will announce the names of those who are in support. It will be a national boycott. Bishop Jackson, before I let you go, what is your response to folks who say that in this day and age, that sometimes these type of boycotts really do more harm than good, particularly as it relates to people of color who may work for said company, and if said companies, maybe their reaction is to have layoffs? You know, let, let, let me comment on that. First of all, for example, let's take Stacey Abrams. Uh, she and I are very close, and we've spoken a number of times over the last two weeks. If you look at her statement, she did not say she was against the boycott. She said she didn't think we should boycott yet, which is why we originally said to boycott for April the 7th. That's because, in fairness, we thought we should meet with corporate executives before we started the boycott. They were not able to meet uh last week because I got a call from the chair of Coca-Cola. It was Easter week. A lot of the executives were away. Many of them did not get back in their offices until Tuesday. In fact, he was in the United Kingdom. He didn't get back until yesterday. So the meeting was not possible. So that's what she said. She said not yet, not that she's against it, but they, she thought there should be a meeting first. And we agreed. As it relates to some of the others, for example, some of the mayors, I understand, for example, if you take the Atlanta by moving of the all-star game, the Atlanta metropolitan area stands to lose $100 million. So I understand why the mayors would be reluctant. But as it relates to the boycott itself and how it affects uh, middle class and low-income people, the fact of the matter is if we sit back and do nothing, let this legislation stand, that's also going to hurt them because you're going to have policies and decisions coming out of this legislature which are going to be detrimental and harmful to them. So the question is, do you do something which might be hurtful to them short term or do you do nothing and make it harmful for them long term? We believe it's better to do something that's going to be short term than to do nothing and make this long term. Bishop Reginald Jackson presides over the 6th Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Bishop Jackson, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, I really appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Have a good one. You too. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Some other news for you. Fulton County's district attorney says she will not pursue charges against Democratic State Representative Park Cannon. Representative Cannon was arrested for knocking on the door to the governor's office as he signed Senate Bill 202 into law. You may remember that. Now, District Attorney Fonnie Willis says she is closing the case against Cannon after interviewing witnesses and reviewing evidence. Willis. District Attorney Willis says while the Capitol Police and some of Cannon's colleagues may have found her behavior, quote, annoying, this does not justify felony charges. 
And as heard just a few moments ago, Bishop Reginald Jackson says a meeting is scheduled next week between corporate leaders and some faith and voting rights groups regarding Georgia's new voting law. We know there's been a lot from all the sides, opponents, supporters, about whether the law is restrictive, improves voter access, or a little bit of both. Well, joining me now and returning to Closer Look is Marilyn Marks, executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance. The organization lists as a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to transparent government and evidence-based elections. Marilyn Marks, thanks for coming back to Closer Look. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. I greatly appreciate your asking. But, but Bishop Jackson's a hard act to follow now. Well, hey, you just, people always <laughs> ask me, what do I do? I say, tell the truth. That's all I can tell you. Let's begin here, uh, because Georgia is among more than 40 states with some type of what many review view as a restrictive law or a pending bill in state legislatures. In fact, according to the Brennan Center, we're looking at Texas, Georgia and Arizona with the highest number of these restrictive measures. Your thoughts on this national wave here? It's absurd, ridiculous um, and completely unnecessary, of course. There was so much opportunity in the wake of the 2020 election for these states, particularly Georgia, to create um, more secure elections, much more transparent elections, simpler elections, and verifiable elections, and Georgia blew it. I know you have read through and analyzed Senate Bill 202 into law. Before we get into it, uh, just your overall opinion on, I think I know, but I'm going to ask you, what is your overall opinion of this law? Every word of it needs to go away. It's, um, it, it is totally unnecessary, and it goes backwards, Rose. Um, it does not make elections more secure. It certainly doesn't make them more accessible. And in your previous segment, um, you quoted Governor Kemp as saying that Georgia was a place easy to vote and hard to cheat. This bill flips that on its head. It makes it hard to vote and easy to cheat. Well, let's dig into some of these that you find problematic. Let's start with what some are calling this takeover uh, measure, which would allow the the legislators to sort of come in and there's a lot here um, yes. to replace county public board officials uh, just your over you're starting with that Marilyn how as you put it dangerous is this provision um Rose that provision is the most insidious egregious dangerous position uh, provision of any law that I have seen in my 12 years of working in election and election legislation um because what this says to us is that one partisan appointee can take the place of an entire county board of elections. And we know that Fulton County is the primary target of the board and the secretary of state. They literally want the ability or gave themselves the ability to march in and take over in almost no time and have the five board members replaced with one partisan appointee And that partisan appointee, Rose, could do everything from planning which polling places are going to be open to how many many machines are in the polling places to counting the votes and determining um, which provisional ballots and absentee ballots to count. So we are allowing one person to operate in the dark. So in a sense, you're saying this Republican-controlled legislature, which is here obviously in Georgia, would have more control over the state election board. Well, they certainly have more control over the state election board. And then that election board, in turn, will just uh, has given themselves permission to take over a county. And that is what's really scary. They can also suspend county election officials. And uh, yes, before we move on to another one, what do you your your take on with the runoff elections now that we're going to It used to think I think it was 30 days before the end of an election, and then if there was a runoff to the, the election, the actual contest, what do you make of that? Is that? It's it's going to be problematic, and everybody, when they first experience it, we're going to learn that it just does not give election officials enough time to create a good, smooth process. It doesn't give 
voters enough time to early vote, get their mail ballots in, even get information. There was no reason to do it. And I think we saw the benefits in January, uh, regardless of what, what candidate you wanted to win. We saw the benefits of having that extended time to get to know the candidates, to focus, to get out the, all of the ballots. And we really didn't need to collapse the period. And I heard people complain, justifying the bill by saying, oh, we just don't want to mess up our holidays with an election. That's pretty ridiculous. Let's talk. Let's move on to absentee ballots. And I know you and I in the past have had conversations about your view on absentee ballots and, and you know, whether or not they are at a risk for or problematic. We'll just keep using that word. But okay. as, as, as it relates here, uh, you, I'll go ahead and let you begin. But as it relates to the absentee ballots and now a voter ID being required, I'll go ahead and let you take it from there. Okay. So in Georgia, we recommend absentee ballots because we don't have an auditable in-person system. And I think what we believe, I think we all believe happened in November is that there was no detectable widespread fraud. We've not heard any credible reports of that. But what Georgia has just done is gone from a very high standard where there is no fraud that anybody knows about in flipping that on its head to inviting fraud. And the reason is, Rose, is because they're getting rid of the only way to authenticate absentee ballots, and that is your individual signature. So all you'll be putting on your absentee application and your envelope is just a driver's license number or a state ID number, not any real authentication. You and I could sit down and have in five minutes thousands and thousands of other voters' numbers and apply for ballots for them. What's your response to someone saying, well, what's the big deal about having you, you have to show your ID when you go to a polling location? So why not just include that in your absentee ballot? Or are you also saying that just opens up a lot more for the risk of identity theft if somebody gets that ballot? Well, certainly there's a problem with identity theft, but but let's go back to the polling place where when you present your ID, they can look at your face and look at the photo and say, yes, that's Rose. She she can vote here. That is not true with a number that is put on a piece of paper. There's no photo in the, the way the substitute by mail ballot remotely. The substitute for that photo is our individualized authenticated signature. I can put down your number, my number, a made up number, and we can have plenty of fraudulent list of numbers that will get us a ballot and we'll also let that ballot be counted. So yeah, we use a photo when we're in person and remotely we use our signature to authenticate us. Georgia went, had a very strong high tier standard one of the best in the United States. Mm -hmm. And this bill drops us to the bottom tier of just a handful of states that don't really require authentication. It will invite fraud. It will invite um, disenfranchisement by people mm -hmm. who have their um, their numbers stolen and a ballot is, is voted for them. When they show up to vote, they won't be able to vote. Something else that you have been talking about with this law is a felony charge if someone other than a voter, and we'll, we'll use these air quotation marks, intentionally looks at the voting screen. For our listeners who may not be familiar with that, tell them your problem with that. Right. For those people who have voted in person, they know there is a big jumbotron-like touchscreen where you... That's not a jumbotron, but it's, it's big. No, it's, it's almost. It's almost. Oh, <laughs> A jumbo truck. You, can see it. you can see it from about 40 feet away as to how that voter is voting. You can barely uh, avoid seeing it. Um, this, this new law says that you can be accused of intentionally mm -hmm. seeing somebody's vote across the room and be charged with a felony. That is just begging for arbitrary type of punishment and abuse you know, uh, uh, a coworker that, that's that's angry with you, an ex-spouse, um, a landlord, so somebody who has 
retribution that they they want to impose on you could easily accuse you of intentionally seeing. Also, your poll workers and poll watchers are supposed to be looking at the machines, certainly not at the uh, at the screens, but there's no way to avoid looking at the screens. The problem is that the, that the Dominion system just doesn't offer a secret ballot. So you shouldn't be punishing the voter. And res, um, election officials have told me they fear this is going to intimidate their poll workers mm-hmm. and have a hard time recruiting poll workers. If you just join us, I'm joined by Marilyn Mark. She's the executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance and also considered an election integrity activist. Do you like that title? That's fine. Yes. <laughs> Let's move on to something else that I want to get to. I can't think of anything more important to be active about. Absolutely. Let's um let's move on because you have we've had this conversation before and I've asked you about the voting machines. Uh, are how what is your assessment of Dominion to begin with? I mean, there are only really three in the country that states can pick from Maryland. So Okay, agreed. And all um now there there may be uh, we shouldn't only say three, but they're they're a small handful for mm-hmm. sure. And there are three larger ones. All of them have the same opportunity to produce a verifiable election by using hand-marked paper ballots. All of them offer that equipment. It's just that um, Georgia chose to add on all sorts of complexity in the Dominion equipment by putting the touchscreens in there. They just need to get rid of the touchscreens, use the Dominion equipment, hand-mark the paper ballots, audit it, and it will be totally fine. Okay. Uh, Something else that you have pointed out, out of precinct ballots not being counted. Let's clear this up on what the law actually says here. The law says that if I go to my precinct, what I've been told is my precinct, and um, I get there and they say, no, you're not on our rolls, you're on the rolls across town, that um, if I vote a provisional ballot, it is not going to count at all even if it is not my fault that I am in the wrong precinct. And we would certainly like to see that changed. There are so many problems in the, the state's database, problems with the electronic poll books. Mm-hmm. There are so many errors that many, many voters get to the wrong precinct through no fault of their own. And this is just um, punitive, and certainly there should be no reason for this. Something else, no emergency mail ballots? within 11 days of the election. Correct me if I'm I'm wrong. I don't think many states have this restriction, do they? You are absolutely right, Rose. I mean, I don't know of any other state that is now going, that is so restrictive that in unforeseen circumstances, like you have a death in the family and have to travel, or you get ill, you're in an accident, or like Governor Kemp, He got quarantined Mm -hmm. four or five days before the election. Under this bill, he would not be able to vote or else he would have to break his quarantine, break his own um, law and declaration. So um, this is really restrictive. There's no reason for it Um, and that a person would not be able to get a ballot in the last 11 days. Even the election directors of the counties say they don't want this. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to work with their voters get them a ballot. And finally, Marilyn, before we end our conversation, I know we talked a lot about a lot of these provisions here. There's been so much made about the the drop boxes, um, the 150 feet of giving, giving someone water or food, what have you. What else out of this law that you feel maybe may not get the attention that it needs, but is problematic through your lens? I know we covered a lot. Um, one thing is that You're right. And as you know, our organization and political organizations send monitors and watchers into both the polls and to mail ballot observation. One really ridiculous thing that's in this bill is that the monitors in mail ballot processing are uh, they put a gag order on them and said, if you see a problem with a ballot or a stack of ballots, ballots being scanned or not scanned, you're not permitted to say anything except to the election official, the very people who are doing it wrong. You're, you're only allowed to talk to them. You're not allowed to come call Rose Scott and say, I saw a problem. 
you're not permitted to talk to the party who appointed you. That is completely absurd. That takes the real reason you have monitors in there to begin with away. It is a way that the state is trying to reduce transparency on the mail ballot process. And that's absurd. One other thing, Rose, that I sure. that I think is, is uh, rather absurd. They've required super expensive security paper to be used for all the ballots now. Well, the Dominion scanners do not even recognize the difference between that expensive security paper and the cheapest paper you could buy at Costco for the mail ballots. It is nothing but waste when so much, that money could be much better spent on, um, on things to enhance the election experience. Marilyn, you have been on this path for a long time. Do you see the courts intervening here? Do you see at some point maybe if the strategy is for some that they want the nation's high court to intervene, where do you see many of these measures going in terms of the constitutional challenge in a courtroom? Uh, I think we're going to see this SB 202 in front of the courts for years to come, Rose. Um, there's so much in here that needs a challenge. We saw the fifth federal lawsuit filed today, and still there are many provisions that have not even been attacked by the massive lawsuits that have been filed. The 98 pages of problems in this bill. So I think we're going to see the courts dealing with this for years to come. And um, I think this will help the public understand just what the legislature did to the voting rights in Georgia. And I'm, I'm hoping that will keep the pressure on. Well, let's look at the from a federal standpoint, if you get a chance to dig through H.R. 1. I have not. Um, not the way that I want to. Mm-hmm. I, I'm generally familiar with it, but I don't think that's our answer. Really? I think we need to create a local answer now. And there are so many things that you and I just discussed that H.R. 1 wouldn't begin to touch. I mean, I don't think any federal uh, lawmaker would have ever in a million years thought that a state would try to take over a county election board. And so certainly the most dangerous provision of SB 202 would not even be contemplated by H.R. 1. Marilyn Marks, Executive Director of the Coalition for Good Governance. It's an organization, it's a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicating its mission to transparent government and evidence based elections. Marilyn, always good to talk to you. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Let's shift for a moment and let's not talk about politics or boycotts or anything. Let's just let's have a nice, cool conversation with a young person. My next guest is blazing a path of her own and helping others in the process. Gabby Tobin is a ninth grader at the Lovett School right here in Atlanta. And you may have been seeing her. She's in headlines. She's like Beyonce. She's everywhere. Twitter, Facebook, news. But it's for her commitment to excellence and for using her math smarts to help younger students during the COVID-19 pandemic. With the permission of her parents, Gabby joins me now to talk more about her math tutorial videos called For Math Sakes Peer-to-Peer Videos and her foundation, 40 Mustard Seeds, and also, there's a lot to talk about, a recent award that she received from Girl Scouts. Gabby, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Hi, good afternoon. How come you're not in school? <laughs> I am actually in school. Um, my teacher let me take uh, a free period. Did you tell her why? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Let's let's go back a little bit. What's the last year been like for you as a student? And what was the transition with the, from the classroom to virtual? How did you take in all of this this last year? For me personally, this past year has been uh, pretty challenging for me just going into a virtual schedule from in-person school. 
I have been getting pretty decent grades throughout the entire uh, through the entire COVID nineteen pandemic, mm-hmm. but it just has been a challenge to uh, to just a transition in general. Has that been for your friends too? Would you have you all talked about how challenging challenging it is not to you know be in school and passing each other in the hallways and the cafeteria and just everything that comes with being being in school? You all talk about this. Yes, we actually do very often. Uh, it's been very, very challenging just not being able to see your friends and people you enjoy hanging out with at school. Uh, I really did miss uh, having my friends just to talk to in between periods. Let me ask you this, because during all this, you came up with an idea. You were going to create, for math's sakes, peer-to-peer videos. What's the backstory here? So the backstory for the actual project is I wanted to connect with the the school Lindley Sixth Grade Academy and their students mm-hmm. because for the past four years I've developed a very very strong relationship and a commitment to work with them. I provided school supplies and volunteer tutoring service services in the area of math and reading for the past four years. And this all started when I was nine years old, turning 10. I gave school supplies instead of birthday presents. And I did this because I wanted to, instead of getting birthday presents, because an overwhelming amount of the presents that I got were left unopened. And so I didn't want those to go to waste. Mm -hmm. And during during this time of like growth and development, I wanted to do something just very helpful. And so we contacted the principal of Lindley Sixth Grade Academy, Dr. Denise McGee, and she agreed to work with us for my 10th birthday. And this is how I developed this strong relationship with the school and the principal. Now the backstory for the project, Mm -hmm. I knew that the COVID-19 pandemic would affect the students at Lindley Sixth Grade Academy because it's a Title I school. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to her and we brainstormed the idea to make the videos. And so I called up some of my friends from school. Uh, five of them were from school. Four, four of them actually go to my school. And then two of them are uh, uh, also Girl Scouts seniors, as so am I. And we just worked on these videos and they just became very, uh, very popular. Yeah, they took off. They went viral, as they say. And you all do all of this. You all do the editing. Are you getting any assistance from teachers or parents? You all have taken this project and you own it, correct? You do everything. Yes, we do everything. Uh, We do the editing, the storyboards. However, we want to do the videos. I since I am the project manager and I did do videos myself, I gave my, I gave my team the freedom to do whatever they want just to make it very understandable and very fluent. Oh, your team. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love that. And, and let me ask you this because I understand the videos are also being converted into other languages. Yes. So I have a very close relationship with the person that is uh, converting the videos into Spanish. And I am so very grateful that I can trust her in, in, uh, in this very, very uh, heavy duty. What is sixth grade math like? I got to be honest with you, Gabby. I, I, I do not remember. I remember sixth grade. I do not remember the math of sixth grade, but <laughs> I'm sure... I'm sure I had some challenges. Uh, what's the feedback been like? The feedback is has all been positive. Uh, we had a few critiques here and there, but those were from the people that have helped us over the entire the course of the project. But the feedback from the students has been uh, very overwhelmingly positive. And I just really love helping the students and just... And they and I love seeing the smiles on their faces. 
That's a great feeling. I understand that. The voice you hear is Gabby Tobin. She's a ninth grader at the Lovett School, and she's the creator of Math's Sake Peer-to-Peer Videos and the founder of 40 Mustard Seeds, because that's what I want to get into now. You have your own foundation. What the found with 40 Mustard Seeds? I know there's a story there, but for our listeners who may not know, why 40 Mustard Seeds? So the name 40 Mustard Seeds, and that is number 40, uh, first, the number 40 comes from the the numbers that I've been donating to Lindley Sixth Grade Academy. So for my 13th birthday, I donated $4,000 and I also volunteered 40 tutors. Mm-hmm. And that's where the number 40 comes from. Uh, the mustard seeds part comes from when, uh, like I said in the previous in the previous statement, I said that I started donating at 10 years old and my mom, we actually were watching a news, uh, a news uh, show, I think. And we saw this, we saw this one segment and it was about these teachers who were donating uh, school supplies to their students. And I asked my mom, because I was nine turning 10 at the time, and I didn't understand uh, why they needed to to buy the school supplies for them. And my mom told me, well, they were less fortunate. And I started to understand then. And then I told my mom that I would do the same thing if I had the money. And then my mom said the famous statement, I don't need money, but all I need is the faith of a mustard seed and a willing heart. Ah, there you go. I knew it was coming. Let's talk about your your mom and this process and those around you who've been so supportive because at the age of 14, you started this when you were around 9 or 10. You know, you've been on a path. Where does this passion come from to help others, Gabby? My mom and most of my family and close friends have always told me that I had a, a, a heart, a willing heart, a gift, a a heart to give. And I don't, I really see this as something that I like to do as just giving back to my community. Uh, People have told me across, across the board that I've been doing like really, really good things, but in my mind, I'm just doing a normal thing. Uh, And let's talk about this gold award from the Girl Scouts. How cool is that? It is really cool, especially as a freshman, because uh, the gold award is usually attained by juniors or seniors. But as a freshman, it's like very, very rare. Very, very rare. Uh, what are your interests, Gabby? I know you. Besides helping others, what do you like to do? Uh, in my free time, I like to do gymnastics. I am a competitive gymnast on my school's team as a varsity member, and I am at Buckhead Gymnastics and cheer. I am also a cellist in my orchestra for more than six years, and I earned the membership in the esteemed honors collegium strings, which is the honors, uh, which is the honors level uh, orchestra. Mm-hmm. And my my other hobbies include traveling, hanging out with my friends, and I also like to solve Rubik's cubes. Know what you know about Rubik's cubes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you say that. (laughs) I've been solving Rubik's cubes for the for as long as I've been donating to Lindley Sixth Grade Academy. I just I think I just picked up the Rubik's cube and my dad and I we were trying to solve it one day and then I and then I memorized all the algorithms and he was just very impressed. Yeah, I try to do that too. I was just turning stuff though. I I can get one side, Gabby. That's it. I can get <laughs> I can get one one side. You mentioned um, the passion that comes with helping folks. What do you think? And this may be unfair at the age of fourteen. Maybe you don't know, but what do you think you might want to do in the future? I have gotten this question a lot of times. Uh, I do want to become an oncologist in the future. Because I've since the age of three, I've always known I wanted to be a doctor. And then at the age of five, my mom, uh, my mom lost a friend to lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's where I wanted to kind of pursue in cancer research. But I never knew at like five years old, what it was called, 
or how to research it. I didn't even know what cancer was. Mm -hmm. I just knew that it was a thing. And at the age of 10, I went to a camp, a summer camp, and we did an oncology course and I just fell in love with it. I just love uh, cancer research and I also love helping people. And summer camp is so cool. We have a segment coming up uh, in the near future about the importance of summer camps on so many kids. I am a summer camp kid here. Gabby, best of luck to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for what you're doing for so many. Gabby Tobin, a ninth grader at the Lovett School, the creator of Math Sakes peer-to-peer videos and the founder of 40 Mustard Seeds. Gabby, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson, our engineers, Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's show, you can find it online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights now at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. And you can subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And also send your emails to me, rose at wabe.org. As always, we enjoy your feedback on a segment that you heard. Maybe there's something you haven't heard that you want us to talk about. Let us know. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.